Kevin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Ron. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is number two, and we're going to be exploring uh, the hungry mind through the lens of filmmaking. And you're a filmmaker. Uh, We go back to 1989, mechanical drawing class, Calaveras High School, San Andreas, California, baby. (laughs) And uh, you've been making movies, I think, even since before then. But uh, like definitely at that time. And there's so many things that could be said about the movies you've made. The ones that come to my mind immediately are By the River, The Bomb, uh, American Chaos, which just came out. So what would you like to say about your filmmaking background? What What do you think is most essential for, uh, for people to know? Well, I think that I um, love filmmaking. And it's because it's something that started when I was a child, very innocently stumbling into a video camera uh, when I was 10 years old and realizing quickly what we could do with this. We could entertain ourselves and we could have a lot of fun. And so I had a group of friends that were willing to be a part of the earliest <laughs> experiments and actually started probably when I was 11, actually putting some of the friends on film and we would make these you know, videos and films together and have a lot of laughs and play them back. And our family was the screening audience for those, you know, pretty much. And then that just progressed in high school. And that's when you came into the picture and I pretty much roped you in on some of that stuff. Oh yeah. And well, not just me, the love of Sir brothers and, and many others. Exactly. Yeah. It's really amazing that everybody went along with it, but I think it was good fun. And see, that's the point of how it ties into the future is like, I've just never stopped because right. it's always been fun to me. I've always seen the camera as a way to engage with people, interact with people, uh, connect with people. And um, then I would say in high school, I had the opportunity to work at the local public access station. And I started to be able to you know, work on shows that would be about interviewing people in the community about certain issues. And what that did was it broadened my horizons from just having fun with it, making up silly movies with my friends to actually realizing with the form of video and, and the format of filming people, you could actually use it as a way to, I don't know, um, discuss issues and, and kind of that's what led me into documentary. Well, and that, and that, of course, is what you're doing in spades with a couple of your most recent. So before you get into American Chaos, uh, because that just uh, came out in theaters on Friday, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, but perhaps you could just rewind the tape a bit to the bomb, because this was, again, another pretty uh, powerful political, uh, piece of art. And of course, you're not just a political uh, filmmaker, which we can get into later. But um, but I think as these both have interesting correlations, perhaps you could just give us a brief sketch of what of what the bomb was, because it was a pretty unique piece of, uh, of of art. The bomb is really uh, very, as you say, very unique, and it's very unique even in the body of my work. But it's an incredible collaboration, and it actually began with the author Eric Schlosser, who when he was writing his book, Command and Control, which is about the dangers of our aging nuclear arsenal, he said, would you like to read the manuscript and help me to make a short film that can work to promote the book when the book launched? And this was back in 2012. 
Was it 2012? I'm so sorry, man. I think it was 2012. Yeah, it's all blur, man. Warp speed. Blur. <laughs> yeah, it was 2012. And yeah. uh, so we read the manuscript, and oh, I read the manuscript, and um, had a lot of visuals come to mind. And then Eric loaded about 50 hours of nuclear films on my lap yeah i remember that man that was a pretty intense time the gravity was quite yeah quite during the dvds documents photos audio tapes he had all this stuff and so we basically crafted it into a four and a half minute short film and the song that we used was radiohead's four minute warning and which had been very inspirational to rick's uh eric's book and um we just got into it and made this really compelling short film, which was not a story, but it was a collage, a, a, a mosaic really of all this footage. And so it was there to just kind of stir up some feelings in the end, let you know that there was this book coming out to uh, check out. So that went really well. It, that took a long time. Actually that took the better part of 2013 to put that short film together. And it came out when the book came out, you know, through the internet. Right, yeah. And uh, it was a great experience. And then some time passed and I moved on. I didn't think about um, nuclear footage. I was like, okay, I've seen enough of that. I'm done. But uh, then Eric came back sometime later and he said, hey, how would you like to go deeper and actually expand out and take some of the themes that we worked on and some of the visuals, but expand it out to about an hour and work with another uh, filmmaker, Smriti Kasheri. And I said, uh, sure, man, like, let's do this. The uh, chance to go back to something is very rare. So to, to go back and actually expand on something, it was a very exciting idea. And what it was, was he wanted us to get together. And it was an emergence of many different ideas, but to basically create a giant multimedia art piece film installation that could travel around. And it would put the audience in the middle of the footage of the nuclear footage. So it would surround the audience literally 360 degrees. Now I'll spare you the boring details, but we spent again a long, you know, probably about a year almost putting together a follow-up version based off the kernel or the seed of that original short film. So a lot of the footage in that did make it to the bigger film, the bomb but then the bomb also just went wildly in its own new directions involving new artists, music from the acid, original right. artwork and graphics from Stanley Donwood, amazing artist and his brother who's called Kingdom of Lud. And so, I mean, just this incredible uh, collaboration with all these different artists over the globe. And we put it together into this 50 minute thing, it got accepted to Tribeca film festival where it was the closing night, film which was a pretty great slot to have it was uh in this old bank and it was uh in manhattan and so the space was converted into this uh right. kind of an experience with 30 foot screens eight of them that surrounded the audience and we could fit almost a thousand people into each show yeah. and i know you guys went to to berlin and then what was sort of the the culmination the culmination was in oslo right Yes, actually, actually, so we went to Berlin with the, the film as well, uh, Australia, Sydney, Australia, Glastonbury, which is an outdoor music festival in England, and that was pretty amazing, Out Under the Stars. 
Right. Um, and tons of film festivals. And by the way, sometimes it would play at a film festival just as a regular movie on one screen. But when it was performed as an installation, it was often surrounding the audience and often had the band, the acid, there playing the score to the movie live. So it's again, a very interactive experience, but we got to take it to Oslo, Norway for the Nobel peace awards. And it was presented in full at a venue and then also presented in part at the actual literal ceremonies, which was an incredible honor, man, and really cool. And, you know, as a filmmaker, you get to go to film festivals a lot and things like that. I've never been to anything like the Nobel Peace Awards before. So even just to sit there and be a part of it and have our work um, included in it, it was pretty surreal and it, I will tell you this, it made me want to make more films about the planet, about people, because somehow I felt like the, in a different way than I had before. I just felt that you could use the tools of filmmaking in the way that someone maybe would write a great novel. And it's not about Academy Awards or, or Film Festival Awards, but something that could actually affect world peace. That's that was like a whole new door that was opened up in my brain when we got to Oslo. Right. Well, before we transition to American Chaos, because I think there is some, an interesting segue we'll make, which is inevitably the film is a very visceral way of approaching uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear bomb, uh, and that's what's so remarkable about it. But how would you describe, I guess, the essence of what the film is trying to ultimately convey? For those that haven't seen it, I saw it in the Exploratorium in San Francisco where it wasn't as interactive because the band wasn't there. It wasn't as uh, circular, the screen, but it was still very powerful. So for those that have not had the benefit of seeing it or reading Eric's book, what if you could just quickly summarize, what is the film and the book trying to convey? Yeah, the bomb and the book Command and Control, I think are conveying uh, the feeling of nuclear weapons. And that's a weird statement, right? The feeling of nuclear weapons, meaning often for many of us, even though we hear about it on the news, especially nowadays, it's an idea, it's a concept, and it's somehow tucked away, right? You just don't feel it in your heart and soul. And a lot of that is because the nukes themselves are out of sight and out of mind quite literally they're buried deep underground so it's like an abstract notion so with the book eric wanted to get in your mind and with the with the film the bomb he wanted to bring those images to the surface so that audiences would feel the absurdity and and, that, and that's me paraphrasing i don't know if eric would agree with that but feel the absurdity of these giant machines that are sometimes you know taller than a than a tall building and capable of wiping out not just entire cities, but entire sections of countries, like groups of, you know, states or something. I mean, these things, the, the destruction that they can do is, is mind-boggling. And so just there, there's an alarming nature to both the film and the books. Right. And the book's aim of just getting you to feel the magnitude of the issue, that this is not a joke, it's not a soundbite. These things are in the ground right now, and unless they're perfectly maintained, we run the risk of 
an accident. So it's not even just the fact that a nuclear war could break out because some people want to start a fight, but just the the fact that a simple accident could cause enormous damage in terms Which is a great way to transition to the next uh, project because nuclear weapons are clearly an existential threat. And I know people like Elon Musk have really been talking about AI, things that are coming down the pike that could be this existential threat. We could obviously expand it uh, as far as a list, but this is something that many people, the nuclear problem and threat may be minimized, like you said, because out of sight, out of mind. So, uh, something we clearly need to be much more aware and mindful of and make sure that uh, politically we're doing what we can to, to provide the right kind of security uh, and promote peace globally. And this is where we come into American chaos because the current president has his finger on the trigger. And, and that is, in fact, yeah, very, very dangerous proposition. So, uh, so American chaos, it came out Friday. What, what is American chaos? American Chaos, it was an amazing uh, documentary experience. So there's a filmmaker and producer named Jim Stern who's made a lot of movies of all kinds, docs, features. And um, more often than not, he's a producer. So he's really great at just kind of seeing the bigger picture. And he contacted me in early 2016. And he said, hey, I've heard you're the guy to team up with, I want to go out on the road and document Trump supporters. Jim, at the beginning of the film, states very clearly, he's an old school Democrat raised in a, a Kennedy household in Chicago. So there was never a, 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 you know, a case here where he was trying to pretend he was something that he wasn't. He just said, I, I have a different viewpoint, but I want to know what's happening, how people could believe in this man as their president. And it was right when it was very clear that Donald Trump was pretty much going to be the Republican nominee. That's about when he made that call. And I think for Jim, it was a wake up call that this was real. This wasn't just a joke. And so of course I said, yes, I would love to, uh, just one year before I had hit the road with a camera and a backpack and traveled and made another film that you mentioned before called By the River. And so it was in my comfort zone to just grab the gear, pack the stuff, and go hit the road. And what's funny is Jim and I didn't know each other very well. And we got to know each other real quick in some rental cars, zigzagging around the country, and literally immersing ourselves for, well, before, during, and then after the election with Trump supporters in their living rooms, in coal mines with them, down along the border with some ranchers, um, in the convention, uh, in Republican mania. Uh, that was right. Cleveland. So we just, that was it. And that's, so the film is a testament to that. It's almost like a, a diary of going through that whole experience. And Jim, it was, a, it was a learning experience for him, but also for me. And I was off camera just kind of, filming and observing and then later had the chance to to help to edit it all together and well i would love to get a sense of what your takeaways were because it sounds like you guys were almost anthropologists amongst trump supporters which for liberal-minded people it's like another culture 
and uh, you, you're in LA, uh, I'm in the Bay Area, and I think often in metropolitan places like that, uh, Trump supporters uh, can be turned into caricatures just like liberals can be from some of those places as well. And I guess were your caricatures confirmed or what, what, what was your takeaway? What did you learn about America in general and perhaps a certain demographic, the Trump supporters uh, in particular? It's a, it's a tough question to answer only because, <laughs> no, well, only because I'm still learning it. I'm still, right, yeah. I went and saw the movie when it premiered on Friday and um, I sat there and I just thought, wow, first of all, I couldn't believe that I shot all that because it happened. Right. And it was like, it was just an incoming and incoming. And I was shooting and, and dealing with that for, for a year and then editing it. So when I sat there in the movie theater, I really saw the story that Jim crafted at, cause he's the director of the film. I co-produced shot and then was one of the editors, but I was able to really appreciate the story that he crafted, which was um, kind of a journey through the mindset of a liberal facing the things that he doesn't agree with. And uh, what I learned during the experience was that we had grossly misunderstood, uh, underestimated rather the anger out there. Yeah. You you have a president like Barack Obama who to this day, I still quote, I still am very inspired by him (laughs) to this day. And yet just the name Obama would trigger anger. So can you be more specific? Like what are people, or in the case when you were interviewing them, what were they angry about specifically? What, what was it discernible or is it just the depends general? On, yeah, it depended on the region that we were in. So in West Virginia, the name Obama triggered a lot of anger because he had announced early on as he was becoming president and maybe even on the campaign trail that he would like to move away from fossil fuels and move the United States towards clean energy. Well, that to them meant war because it meant he wanted to come for their jobs. The same people would tell us in West Virginia in the the coal country that the average life expectancy of a coal miner is 50 years old. Yeah. 50 years old. By the way, when we made the film, Jim was just turning 60. So if he was a coal miner, he'd pretty much be gone already. And it just seemed crazy to me that people would be upset and fight for something that is killing off their own kin. And I completely agree with you. However, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about human psychology is is it is a real ordeal for change, especially if your whole life you've been conditioned by a place, and even if it's killing you, but it's what you know, it's who you are. It's uh, it's how you uh, perhaps have found meaning and purpose. And, um, you know, it is crazy, but I think we all fall prey to similar kinds of uh, habits, so to speak, that are hard to, hard to break. And yeah. yeah, and it's, I mean, and this is where really politics comes down is not just clean energy, but how do you transition so that people find that meaningful? They have the right kind of training. I don't, I, I don't know in what capacity any of these things are well, going on. And but. Is there anger towards president Obama? Right. The, is he the only one culpable? Did, did no one see this coming that, that, that was unsustainable? 
Oh, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so that was, that was what I found was just the name Obama was like a, an easy way for people just to say it's his fault. And Hillary was going to be more of the same. So therefore, and that reason alone, they were for Trump. Now that was in that region. Right. Um, you know, because it was all about their jobs on the border. It was a different scenario where people felt that Hillary was for open borders that she would allow, if not encourage illegal immigrants to just pour in. And, you know, that was really fascinating for me to see, man, because the people on the front lines down there were saying we need border agents because they, they were talking about, people coming in, human trafficking, drug trafficking, et cetera, defecating in their front yard and leaving dead bodies in their yards. It was their yards are land, you know? Right. And that's the one I remember where, where it does seem there was at least in the case of that rancher, right. Who literally had his property on the border and people were coming through because he had a fair amount of property and he found like a dead body, didn't he, on his property? Yeah. And they're going, yeah, that's legitimate. You know, th- those are legitimate concerns. And didn't he build some kind of a, a wall just so people wouldn't come through and they still found ways? Is, is that accurate? Well, Sim, it's kind of the federal government actually had a version of a wall, which is kind of funny that Trump ran on this whole thing that he's going to build a wall. Some areas already have a metal wall fence, a giant fence is what it is. And, but again, as we've learned, there's not one barrier that can physically cover the southern border of the United States because the, the geography is so uh, just challenging. So even even on this one rancher's property that we met, you know, the federal government, and I don't know if that was from the Bush years or from the Obama years, but there was a giant, like, 20-foot thick fence that went all along his property, and then it just ended. And so you could just walk right around, <laughs> right? It's absurd. And then there was also... Oh, Tax was well spent for sure. And practically, (laughs) when you fly in the airplane and look down, you know, borders are kind of silly. It's just giant land masses. Well, as you obviously know, and many people know, rainwater drains and does what it does. And so in effort, in an effort to kind of keep the land um, just doing what it does they have to, even when they've put these big wall fence things in, they've had to leave floodgates because otherwise the water would build up and knock the walls over anyway, or create all kinds of crazy swamps and weird things. So when the floodgates are open, which are four months of the year, people can just walk right through them. (laughs) Currently, this isn't something that they're, going to put in it's already in and so in the film american chaos we spend some time with a rancher we stand along the wall and i remember taking a shot of a thin strip of barbed wire and i was kind of obsessed with it because in where i was even though we were in front of this big 20 foot steel wall fence thing there was just this floodgate open with a literally one thin piece of barbed wire you know, and I got a close up and I panned along it. And I thought, wow, this piece of barbed wire, this right now is the only barrier between the U.S. and Mexico. Yeah, so, real deterrent. 
Yeah. So there's a bigger <laughs> issue. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, people are right. across the Canadian border as well. Um, well, it's it's obviously a complex topic, and I think that that's one of the things we've talked about is that anytime you try to reduce an issue to its black or white, it's a binary choice, what side are you on, then you remove it from reality. Uh, and I think that that's what seems to happen so often in this country. There's, one, there's either one monolithic way of looking at the world or another or about it, you know, an issue. And one of the things I recall from, you know, your experience was just how you recognize that it is more nuanced. You know, there are certain people that these issues are legitimate issues. Totally. Certain people, certain states. What happens is that they become dog whistles to whether it be racists or people that have other axes to grind. And then people start latching on to things that they really know nothing about. But it just seems to create some emotional resonance with their own problems. Everyone's aggrieved. And, you know, and, and so, again, I, I think that that's just a tricky, a tricky place that we're in. And I'm curious what. So you guys made the movie. Um, it sounded like an effort to try to understand this, uh, this big part of uh, American culture. But what do you hope, I guess, the, the viewer might come away with? Uh, is there anything in particular that, that you're hoping to convey uh, from, from the movie? Yeah, man. Well, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, these things happen, right? Where you make a film and people have very mixed reactions. And so Jim has made, I believe, 45 to 50 films as a producer. And some of those he's directed, but mo mostly as a producer. But he's been involved with that many productions in his career. He said this is the most polarizing reaction to a film that he's ever been, of any film he's ever involved with. And what's interesting is some of the harshest criticism we've gotten some of the nastiest reviews have come from folks on the left. Really? Or, yeah. And what's, what's amazing is what the, the heart, the, the heart of that criticism seems to be. And I've read as many of these as I can read good and bad in reviews about American chaos. And um, many folks on the left seem to feel upset that Jim didn't put, you know, put the Trump supporters in their place that he didn't, challenge them hard enough they didn't critique them or even outright embarrass them and call them out on their views and it, and what happened is that they missed the point of the film entirely which was the exercise was to listen and try to understand what do these people believe why do they believe this and the second that he was to push back and tell them that their beliefs were stupid or that bobby kennedy was his hero or whatever the thing was you would lose those people. They would just immediately shut down, keep their views to themselves, probably just in the interview. Right. And so you get this idea from the response of this film that sometimes maybe the problem here is we even here when it's packaged and presented for you to watch, to right. say, look at how these people feel. You still can't listen. You're still, yeah. <laughs> I know. it's like oh, this guy man. went out and he held his tongue and you see him trying to hold back in the film from saying, I disagree or whatever. He just, he's trying to just gather the information and present it back to you. And I mean, he's had some pretty nasty uh, comments leveled at him. As if he's some kind of uh, apologist for the right, for the exactly. Trump supporters. Or, and I don't, well, and this was kind of tragic in a way because 
Yeah, I think it can happen on either side of the aisle, so to speak, but just that incapacity to listen, like you said. And, and I think that's a really great exercise and something that's an important thing to provide that window into what, you know, a sizable portion of this country believes. I mean, where we grew up, Calaveras County, um, there's a fair amount of Trump supporters. Many, I'm sure, are like old friends, family, whatever it might be. And we know, having grown up uh, in that environment, that they're wonderful people, you know. And so just to reduce them to... Uh, these slogans and tweets, it, it just, it strips away their humanity. And of course, that, again, the same can be leveled um, towards, towards liberals uh, from, from the right, so to speak. But, but someone has to be the adult in the room. You know, we have to be able to learn how to have discourse uh, as, a, as, as a culture. Yeah. Otherwise, how can we move the needle uh, in any kind of positive direction if we're just, if it's a stalemate at best? And so I really admire that approach, and I think we could all probably uh, do a little bit more of that. Absolutely. So, so that's a pretty cool message, and um, and hopefully there will there will be people in critical reviews that get it. Well, <laughs> and, and, and back to your question though, which was like, well, what, is there anything I would hope that they would get? It's it's I kind of veered off into into what happened there with the reactions, in some cases. But I would hope that people would really listen and see what they're up against. Because, for example, we had a Q&A after the screening at that uh, Friday night, and Jim got up there and answered some questions. Of course, he's the director. And, but there was a, a gentleman who stood up and he said, I wish that every Democratic candidate running for Senate, Congress, you know, whatever, would watch this film. And study it because, mm. again, these folks are speaking their minds clearly, articulately. They're telling you how they feel. And whether we like it or not, this is part of our body of America. So to look at your your whole body and then make the diagnosis of like, okay, well, here's how we'd like to improve. You can't just deny that you have certain things going on. Let's say, for example, you have something wrong with your knee. And but you just choose to ignore it and focus yeah. on getting a new pair of sneakers or something. Like, come on, man! Like, let's look at what you, let's look at what's going on and listen to the body in this right. case. Hey, but I've heard those new Jordans can really help. You don't have to get that knee replacement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, man, I just I find and and by the way, yeah. I just want to say there are some really good reviews too. I kind of was speaking just about the bad ones because that impacted me, but. I would encourage anyone to to look it up and, and check it out and read about it. But it's it's fascinating that something that's such a beautiful point of view, really. Jim's point of view is really a, a beautiful one of listening, and he's a patriot, and he loves his country. And it's very clear if you just watch the film, and I find that incredibly inspiring. And so I also would feel that I would hope someone would watch this and kind of remember that we are not what we are, but what we are becoming. And so we can shape this thing, right? We're not stuck in any one destiny as, a, as a Americans, that we can actively participate and, and make this into what we want it to be. And hopefully that's something that is inclusive to all. That's my personal viewpoint. I think it's... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's... Uh, and I would be okay with listening to your other point of view. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, I think we all we all need to to learn that. And I, I, you know, I know you listened to the first podcast with Josh, and that was one of the things that he was mentioning with improv fundamentals. We need to learn these things, whether through the context of improv or political philosophy or whatever it might be. But you know, open listening. Uh, we need to be able to make our partner look good, and as our partner in the context of culture is one another. Um, and it's a very diverse uh, group in the United States uh, these days, which I think is very uh, positive and hopeful if we can listen and be open and recognize that we all have something to say, but we have to work together and um, sacrifices need to be made. Uh, so, yeah, well, you know, to, uh, a quick tangent. Um, I was just thinking, because it was a year apart in the summer of 2016, of course, I was on the road with Jim just immersing ourselves in the middle of Trump supporters. So it was me on the road with a guy filming. But in the summer of 2015, I went out on the road with Elder Coltrane, who's the actor from the movie Boyhood. And we took a camera, backpack, the basic stuff, and hopped on a train from Austin and zigzagged around the country west until we got to California. Now, let me just tell you this. The focus in that film was listening to people, talking about life, creativity and spiritual growth if you watch that film it's like a different country now it's the same country it was just about a year before the political firestorm so we caught this interesting moment but everybody in the film that we came across and met were pretty open they were cool and willing to have conversations and think bigger thoughts about what's the meaning of all this and and so you kind of wonder, well, what the heck happened? Because I wonder, because I'm the same guy and I was traveling around with one person filming and the two films have very similar style photographically and editing wise. It's like they're a portrait of two different countries. Well, I think this is a wonderful example of uh, not only say, uh, two different kinds of filmmaking, or I guess they're similar, but in the spirit of realizing that our country here, the earth is like this multifaceted jewel. If you twist it one way, something is reflected, twisted another, something else. And so are people. So you could trigger, uh, you know, the, this kind of vitriolic passion uh, for you know, whatever candidate it might be amongst people, you twist them another way. And all of a sudden you're having a a drink, a coffee or a beer and having a great time really connecting. And I think that, you know, when we lose sight of that is, is really, um, you know, problematic. And yeah, that's what by the river I thought did a really good job of, of conveying. Yeah. It's funny too, man. And by the river, one of the places that we stopped was Boulder, Colorado, and it was so cool. And we met it a friend there, a guy, and, and he went on to become a great friend. And, you know, he grows his own vegetables up in the, in this cool greenhouse dome thing he has. So it was a very progressive kind of cool place. And, a, and a, just a glimpse of a different life of another life cut to a year later, I'm at the Republican convention. We did not have proper media passes to be where we were, so Jim and I snuck our way into the delegate section, and we picked Colorado. And we were just kind of hanging with the delegates, blending in, if you will, waiting for Big Daddy Trump to come out and do his thing. 
And yeah. I got, you know, so I'm, I'm over in the, the Boulder section talking to this guy uh, from the Colorado delegates. And, and he says he's from Boulder and he grows his own corn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rocky Mountain High. Yeah. This is this really cool <laughs> dude. And I, I was thinking, man, this, this guy's pretty, pretty cool. And of course, it kind of made me think of like, yeah. And I told him, I was like, yeah, a year ago, I was, I was traveling through and I was making this other film. And we had a really nice conversation. I don't know if the guy seemed kind of like an old hippie or something in a way. Just super easy yeah. to talk to. Seems like an anomalous Trump supporter. Well, I'm going <laughs> to tell you, man. When Trump came out, the lights dimmed. It was like a WWF moment. He came out. This music was pumping. And this guy switched. Like, trying to snap yeah. my fingers. He, boom. Right? Yeah. And... The, the veins in his throat started kind of popping out and his face turned kind of red and he was screaming wow. at the top of his lungs, lock her, wow. lock her up and build the wall, build the wall and other things that I won't even repeat. But he was yelling and I was like, what the heck happened? This was like this normal chill guy who grows his own corn a minute ago. And now just at the sight of Trump, it's like he just switched and um you know that was just a little side tangent i thought i would dazzle you with older is a complex place you know just depends on what kind of questions you're asking these people yeah man that was quite a fireworks display very very dazzling uh (laughs) real pyrotechnician uh, but no, I do think it is in all seriousness. I think that those kinds of anecdotes are really important because it shows the human side. And then all of a sudden there is this trigger and someone turns, yeah. turns savage. It sounds like. You know, again, back but, to what did I learn? I, I think I learned Trump is a, is a trigger for a lot of these folks. Like just somehow the side of him or the tenor of his voice. And as you, I think you said before, dog whistling. And I guess in fairness on the other side, maybe that's how they felt about President Obama, whereas I see him and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I love what he said. That is the same thing, which is someone else. People definitely felt that about Hillary, it seemed. Um, You know, and I'm sure Obama too, you know, and and this is perhaps a other conversation, but there was some very subtle to not so subtle racism that I think was baked into a lot of the, you know, the criticism as well. So... Interesting times, uh, indeed. But I wanted to ask this kind of meta question about the American cast, because I, as uh, you know, I'm a high school teacher, teach philosophy and world religion. And one of the electives I've been teaching to seniors the last two years is called the wisdom of chaos. And this sounds sort of like an oxymoron because chaos, uncertainty, disruption, randomness, these are things that we generally try to avoid, like the plague. So when we hear of chaos, we think negative, keep it away. However, chaos science that tries to understand nonlinear systems, that randomness and disruptiveness uh, within natural systems, realizes, in fact, it's the engine of evolution. Nature uses it to create uh, stars and coral reefs and new genetic traits and organisms and civilization and so forth. And so there is a wisdom that in many ways we live in times of tremendous chaos, uh, disruption, randomness, uncertainty. How do we learn to be uncomfortable with it? How do we learn to use it, realizing that real power might in fact be like that proverbial butterfly wings flapping its wings in the Gulf of Mexico and creating a typhoon in Asia? 
So reorienting how we see power and influence, um, recognizing that life is not just within our control and or civilizations, and how do we work with with those kind of assumptions? So I guess from your standpoint, while it seems to be very chaotic indeed, do you think there's any wisdom that can arise from this moment in time uh, because of because of it? Well, yes, because. You know, think about it like that. If a natural disaster occurs, you see people's true colors emerge. You see heroes just born because they stop thinking about themselves. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I can to help other people. Like when a hurricane hits, like what's happening out on the East Coast right now or past earthquakes, you know, whatever it is, like these things, they shake us up. And I feel like this is a whether it's a political or spiritual or emotional natural disaster, this chaos <laughs> right. is, is making us all wake up to who we really are. Now, some people might be even more vegetable-like than they were before. Some people might yeah, for sure. not care. Other people might realize that they're a foaming, frothing racist. But then <laughs> that was just kind of latent in them. Others, like in my case... I feel a call to service to try to do more to um, use the skills I have in this case, camera editing, storytelling to do things that will wake people up and help them, you know, maybe feel inspired to kind of keep going or whatever, you know, that's kind of, like I said, what, what occurred to me when I was at the, at the Nobel peace awards of like, we can do good. And, um, but anyway, so yes, within this chaos, maybe if we allow it to bring to the surface what we are, who we are, and, and then take that, look at it honestly and think, okay, what are we going to do with that information? Again, if you find out you're a racist because of this chaos in this moment, you don't have to stay that way. You could say, you know what? Why am I this way? This isn't cool. Maybe I'm going to change it. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know. That's an optimistic viewpoint. I don't think many people even want to think that deeply. They might just kind of react, but that's the wisdom is that's there. And also I think collectively, if we look at that chaos and say, okay, this is who we are. This is where we are. We allowed this to happen to this degree, but where do we go from here? And I do feel very optimistic. It's interesting. I've worked with Eric Schlosser who, you know, spent, I think it was eight years writing about nuclear weapons to make that book, Command and Control. And I just saw him speak uh, a week ago or so uh, at a screening of the bomb. And he's, he's still expressing optimism. You know, he's like, he's not living his life in some bunker. Um, Same thing with Jim. He went face to face with the opposite viewpoint and, and spent time with all those Trump supporters. And it's, He's out there right now pushing hard for some of these really awesome upcoming Democratic uh, House of Representatives candidates. You know, he was like hosting an event recently for that. So, again, it inspired his optimism and of wanting to help. So that's interesting that we could all react to this chaos differently. But for those who want to, it can actually be a beautiful thing to wake us up. I just don't like the fact that it's going to take a lot of a lot of work and a lot of time 
to maybe build back. I think that's the old saying, right? Of Is it two steps forward, one step back? Yeah, I guess it depends on the, on the time. And yeah, I mean, we definitely need to see, need some kind of quantum leap around climate change. And a whole will we have that time. chance? And, and if we don't, it was us who did ourselves in, in that sense, we did, at the very least, we didn't adapt. You know, you take that other viewpoint of people who say, well, we didn't create this. It's just the earth doing its thing. Okay. That doesn't mean you have to have your head in the sand and not adapt. Well, and, and this kind of, yeah, I think that that that's the key. I mean, you've probably heard me say this. Uh, you know, Charles Darwin was looking at the paleontological record. He's saying that it's not the strongest that survive or the smartest, but those that are most adaptable to change. And I think that really is going to be test our metal. How adaptive and agile are we? Not only as individuals, but as institutions as well. And I think there are positive signs, and inevitably we have to help create a groundswell by putting our effort and energy in the direction, in the in the area that that we believe. And so, so I think all these things can be a catalyst for sort of getting the sleep out of our eyes. So, to by speak. the way, that adaptability, as you just described it is exactly the metaphor for, I feel, for my film career, if you can even call it that. It's just, it's a nonstop adaptability because, like I said, I started as a kid just having fun. I, in high school, had a great mentor and worked in public access and then went on, bounced around, and, and always open and willing to learn about any and all different positions that I could, whether it was the shooting, the editing, but at points, I was a, a production assistant, a costume assistant, a dolly grip assistant. <laughs> like uh, I guarded the equipment on set, like sleeping overnight in some truck just to kind of keep an eye on things, which was kind of nuts. But over the years, just always so eager and willing to see it and adapt to the moment and just take that information. And so... I look at the films that I have had a chance to make and that I'm even continuing to make. And I think, well, this is interesting because it's a direct result of all of those experiences. So if I make a documentary, it's informed by all of the stuff I did, even as an assistant in my younger years on a fiction movie. Right. Well, well, let me ask you something more, uh, more pointed about that career, that adaptability that I think you clearly exemplify, what would you say are some of the fundamental principles of that adaptation? If you were talking with, say, your younger self, like right after high school, or perhaps, you know, someone that's thinking about becoming a filmmaker, what what kind of advice would you give them about how, you know, what does adaptability need to look like in order to, to quote, be successful in this industry? Yeah, well, it's changing so often. That's what's weird is the, the, the film business isn't even remotely the same as it was, say, 20 years ago. Right. So the very business itself is morphing and changing at such a rapid speed. I mean, even as we talk you know there's new platforms coming out and cable cord paradigm is kind of gone you know the cable cords getting cut all the time and now we're all in these subscription models and 
with not just the film, but with music and some, some cases, even books are switching to digital. So it's really weird, but that adaptability, what I try to think about is within that, am I still engaged in what I'm doing? So it comes back to the moment and I try to just think if I have an idea or an inspiration, just, just get on that man, write it down and then take actionable steps almost immediately to try to make that happen, make the idea a reality. And that's something that actually I've been incredibly inspired by the filmmaker, David Lynch. And he talks about that ideas, you know, you kind of catch them. It's like fishing. And, right. and it's something that really he's, he speaks about very eloquently in a, in a cool way. Um, but, but I, I like to think of that. Like if an idea comes in my head, um, get it on paper. And then, well, and isn't he emphasizing in, in the catching the big fish, which I think you recommended to me that book, uh, how transcendental meditation has been pretty instrumental for him to be able to catch those bigger yeah. fish. Uh, in the, in the, I love that book. in the psyche. And there was a period, period. Yeah. And so what for you is what, what allows you to catch those big fish, so to speak, is there a particular kind of, of meditative practice, spiritual practice is your art itself, that practice, like what, what allows you to get into that zone oh, where man. those, those things begin to, to well, come? unfortunately, I just am not great at meditation. I, I even created a space to do it. You know, I have this like little elephant fountain thing. I got like some sage and incense and it's this spot on my back patio. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be my meditation spot. But I struggle with it now when I, when traditional meditation, like I'm going to sit here and just silence my mind and light a little sage or whatever. It just, you really like sage, don't you? (laughs) I've been trying to light incense. I've been trying to light incense while I'm talking to you and it it won't catch. It's like, it's not burning. So, I mean, don't fuck with the audio. All right. I mean, I want crisp, clear audio. I don't but, uh, anyway, so when I try to meditate, it doesn't work. Now, if you put a camera in my hand and just let me kind of go into the world, the world becomes silent to me and I get incredibly engrossed in things and I lose myself in it almost instantly. And so to me, in that state, I'm in a meditative trance. And um, sometimes listening to music, especially um, jazz music, that to me is like a meditative state. My It just kind of lifts me up and I can hear things and I get literally kind of like ideas. Like I feel like are whispered or something. Cause like, I just kind of hear things and then I'll think, Ooh, I got to do that. And then I'll write it down later. So anyway, the meditation definitely is there and it comes, but not in some way that I feel like it's supposed to, <laughs> you know, like kind of like, so it's the art is in fact that that state which i which i've noticed from uh you know from a distance or when i've had the opportunity to work with you and i think that's pretty fascinating because uh in many respects it seems to me a lot of the projects that uh will upwell from within 
are really a way of trying to understand something within yourself. You know, how do you bring mindfulness, awareness, in this case, your case, filmmaking with those qualities to a particular issue? Maybe it's a fictional story or maybe it's something political. And it does seem like you're really just trying to do that, cast light on something that was perhaps in the dark before within yourself or in the corners of our own society. Uh, is that, would you say, somewhat yeah, accurate? Yeah, it's totally accurate, man. I was just remembering, too, a time you picked me up, and I had this little 3D camera. And this was in, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That in was 2012. Cool. And, and I, I don't know, you took me to, like, the ocean and the forest. and But what, what it was was during 2012, wherever I was traveling, I kept this little 3D camera with me. And I was so interested, A, to learn about the technology of three-dimensional video, but also thinking of it as like a meditation. And so the whole idea was I wanted to just film streams, ocean waves lapping, uh, clouds, cities from afar, you know, whatever it was, just kind of film it, not judge it and experience it. So that was a case where the technology was giving me this interesting inspiration to just lose myself in it and observe and kind of become silent. And you witnessed that. I remember you helped even facilitate this by taking me to some of those locations. And that's a film I made. It was an 80 minute film that just showed 3d images from all over the United States. I got to play it at a a 3d film festival when I was all done with it. And um, anyway, it was incredible experience and the cameras are always changing but that is pretty true that like it's a portal into something and i've heard musicians are like that with their instruments and and even artists who sketch i think are like that with their pencil and paper you know it just these things just kind of take you yeah i think i remember watching uh a part of that that film wait you didn't uh, watch the, the whole before. thing What's you never that? watched the whole thing? No, the whole, uh, I mean, I watched all 30 hours. <laughs> but no, I was just going to say that time we watched yeah. it together before Ian, uh, Ian's wedding. So that was that was cool. But, you know, hey, there, I know there's a lot of other directions we could go. And I, and I would definitely like to delve, have a whole separate uh, episode kind of around the artistic process, because I think that's a pretty rich uh, yeah. area to mine. And there's also something else I'd love to touch when you, I know when you get to Texas, uh, which is going to be pretty soon, I want to, I want to perhaps have a podcast about what's happening down there. So as a way of signing off, maybe you can give us a little quick preview of what's bringing you to Texas and, uh, and perhaps we can fill in uh, listeners with, with a little more details then. So, so what's happening next? Well, it's being figured out in real time, which is what's beautiful. Right. This is a talk about adaptability. Two weeks ago, I was living my life. My wife and I were at Telluride Film Festival to support another movie that Jim, who made American Chaos, had produced, which is called The Old Man and the Gun. And it's coming out soon. It's excellent. It's Robert Redford's final movie. And anyway, we were there just to support that and to see it. And the Telluride Film Festival was a very cool experience in the mountains and you know so you're surrounded by cinema and an idea sparked up one night over tea coffee and 
desserts. And, um, and the idea was to get down and to get in the middle of what's happening in Texas, which is basically a political and human tide change. There's a tide that's changing there. Basically, it's on the brink of going from its status as a red state back to a blue state. Yeah, right. these colors are kind of arbitrary, but, you know, the whole red and blue. And so if anything, maybe it's becoming a little bit purple or anyway. There, but there, were, there was a discussion happening between Jim Stern, who I made American Chaos with, and Eric Schlosser, who I made the bomb with, and my wife and Eric's daughter. And basically everyone at the table was like, "We, you got to stop what you're doing and just get down there and get in the middle of it and film it because whatever's happening it's it's indicative of the bigger changes that are happening in the united states of america um there's a huge demographic switch where white power structure in texas is basically getting less and less that the uh, i don't want to say minorities because in the end of the day what's happening is the demographics are becoming so diverse that help me out here. I don't know. You know how to word this, but. Well, and I think what you're saying is that basically there's this demographic shift and the tides changing. And well, on one hand, we see uh, many liberals were surprised by this surge of uh, the Trump worldview. Nonetheless, this isn't the final story. Uh, or chapter, uh, there's this dynamic uh, shift that's going on, not just in this country, but but beyond. And so it'll be really fascinating yeah. to see what you're able to find on the so ground. What, what I'm, I'm sure. looking to do is to kind of get away from the, the what's right out in front, right, which is the candidates who are all in the races. That's interesting, and that's happening. But what, what has caught my attention and what has now kind of sprung up in the last couple of weeks, and I'm just basically uh, packing up my gear now. And honestly, man, side note, that's why I've been a little frazzled. Like, I feel like normally I'm a lot more articulate and even funny. But during the course of... Yeah, you weren't very funny tonight. That's a little well, disappointing. Yeah, so, <laughs> next time, hey, hey, you can make up to it. Uh, you can make up for it it's next time. Because though, I've been, uh, for the last two weeks since this idea popped up in, in late at night, just on the move, trying to write it, trying to research it, trying to reach out to folks in Texas to kind of plot out. Because with a documentary, you just got to find your story. Well, hey, I want to thank you because I know you have been actually deep in it uh, and you've taken, you know, over an hour just to, to have this chat with me. So I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, you know, sign off uh, to be continued for sure. I, I wish American Chaos tremendous success. And uh, I'm pretty excited to see what you're able to to dig up in, in yeah. Texas, so to speak. So, the whole uh, film. so Kevin, it's a whole film. Yeah, absolutely. This one, it's going to be I'm directing it and shooting it and most likely editing it. So it's going to tie in with some cool. of my past works as well. Visual. Well, well, Godspeed, my friend. And, uh, we will, we will talk soon. Thanks, Ron.